everybody, and welcome to another episode of Recording Lounge. It is February 20-whatever-it-is, and we are back with another installment of Top 10. So today, we are going to talk about the top 10 things that will improve your mixes. That's right. What top 10 things I think will improve your mixes the most. All right. Let's jump in, clocking in at number 10 on the top 10 things that can improve your mixes. Organize your workspace. So, okay, I know that's not really like a mix trick or anything like, hey, this is a quick tip to get better mixes. Well, that's not really, you know, what this one's about. There are so many times when I, you know, when I'll get sessions for mixing and they're very poorly organized and it's not, for the record, it's not really the mixer's job to organize a session it's generally speaking the tracking engineers and or editor uh, it's their job to organize the session however when I get a session that's unorganized I have to organize it now organization goes in a couple of levels so first you got to name your tracks and we've talked about this before this is not new information but you have to name your tracks you know give them useful names don't just say like guitar that's pointless and even verse guitar can be a little, you know, can be a little misleading sometimes, but that's so much better. You know, it would be much better to say something like verse electric than just verse guitar, you know, because what is that? What is, uh, is it an electric guitar, acoustic guitar, bass guitar, you know, 12 string guitar? You got to be specific about what it is and name the tracks quickly and efficiently. The second thing is you need to organize the tracks in a way that makes sense. Um, and I mean organize them in a few ways. One, organize them you know, in the track list, in the edit window, or in the, in the timeline, whatever you want to call it, um, vertically in a way that makes sense. Usually in my case, I do the lead vocal up top, then the backing vocals right after that. And then, you know, it, it trickles down. Everyone has their own way of doing it. So, you know, you could put uh, the drums next and then the bass and then the guitars and then the keyboards and then the synths and then your effects. Um, and you can do it that way. My suggestion, though, is not only organize it that way, but do it that way every single time. Why? Because it makes your brain it removes the technical, you know, the searching element from the mix. You don't have to worry about that. You know, oh yeah, uh, this is always, you know, at the very end of the session. The, the effects are always at the very end or, or whatever. It doesn't matter where you put them. The point is do it that way every time. And likewise, you should also try to color code your tracks the same way every time. In my case, vocals are always blue if they're a male, pink if they're a female, um, drums are always gray, guitars are always green, acoustic instruments like mandolin or acoustic guitar um, or violin are usually some shade of brown, uh, pianos are red, organs are yellow or orange, orange organ, get it? Um, and bass is always purple, and backing vocals are usually sort of like this teal color. I mean, and I know that off the top of my head because I do it all the time and all of my mixes are like that and I don't really even think about it anymore. So my eyes will just snap to the tracks that I need. So if I need to edit guitars or look at guitars, see what's going on, I just scroll to the green tracks 
right? I don't even think about it anymore. I don't even think like, okay, where did I put the guitars? They're green. Like, I just know. And if it's an acoustic guitar, it's probably tan or, you know, some brown color. And, uh, you know, so think about it like that. Think about your session as, you know, like a big puzzle, right? When When your mix is not finished, it's like a big puzzle, and there's no way that you can just do a puzzle just from a random assortment of pieces. You know, you start sorting things, you know, like, oh, look, here's part of the sky, right? And then you put a big pile of the sky, and then you work on the sky, and then, oh, look, here's the trees. Okay, here's the treetops. Okay, well, let's all work with ones that look like the treetops. You know what I mean? Like, it's a mix is like a large puzzle. So, you need to organize your space in a way that's quick, efficient, and uh, just in, it makes sense to you. It doesn't matter what it is. Just organize your session every time when you first open it up. That's the first thing you should do is organize it. You know, go through and listen to the tracks if you have to, um, but organize your session. That goes number 10 on the list. This is going to be good, guys. That's a lot more important things than that even. Okay, number nine is leave headroom. Now, we've talked about gain staging before, and it's more important now than ever in the age of the loud song, uh, the loudness wars, if you will. And this really applies in the recording process as well. You know, you don't have to record things all the way up to zero. I mean, I would say as a maximum, negative six. I mean, really, you do not need to be recording any higher than that. You just don't. I mean, you need to leave headroom in the mix. Plugins sound better when your tracks have more headroom. I mean, if you need more details on the on the gain staging thing, go listen to the show where we talk about gain staging. I man, I'm blanking on my own shows here. I don't remember if there's like a specific show called gain staging. I don't remember. Anyway, go through the other shows, check it out. Um, I just got some questions on that by email actually, and and I'm really glad that you guys are you know testing it out and experimenting with it because it's so, so important. And, you know, it, it really, really can make a big difference in the way that your mixes sound. It, and, and it'll make the mastering engineer happy. Now, again, a lot of guys are like, well, I just put a limiter on my master. Well, again, that's part of this whole thing. Don't do that. Don't put a limiter on your master. You, I'm telling you, you are setting yourself up for, you know, masking problems in the mix and having a hard time getting a mix to sound the way that you want it to sound and not really understanding you know what it is that you're doing to the signal quality uh, because it's generally not good now it's one thing if you pop a limiter on at the end of the mix i mean there are big wigs out there that put an l2 on the mix and chop off a couple db but I can tell you for a fact that most of the best big wigs, the guys that produce the real good sounding stuff, they don't do that. Um, they really, really don't. Um, they leave plenty of headroom on their master bus. You know, the the highest level that they might have is, you know, negative three, negative four, negative five on the master. They don't need to put a limiter on there to protect from overs because there are no overs. Like, an over is a bad thing. And, you know, if you if you put a limiter on your master, I challenge you this. Take it off. And if your master bus is clipping, then your mix has crazy loud gain staging. So if you have a limiter on, turn it off and see if your master bus clips. If it doesn't clip, 
and if in fact gets quieter, like a lot quieter, and you know isn't going to clip the master the entire song, then leave it off and mix that way. If it doesn't sound right, well, work on it on the individual tracks. It's going to be way, way more important to do it there because that's where you know the sound is coming from. It doesn't come from like you can't get you know all this fake loud sound with a limiter and expect you know to really take that places and it, I I don't know. I could go on and on about this. Point is, don't mix the limit on your master. Leave plenty of headroom on the tracks. Get into the gain staging thing that we talked about in another show. And uh, your mixes will significantly improve if you start, you know, understanding how much better it sounds. Okay. Number eight clocks in at pace. Again, you're probably sitting there like, oh my gosh, it's not a mix tip. Yes, it is. Okay, it is a mix tip pace yourself okay you have to set yourself time limits i know people that are struggling to learn mixing and you know um i'm teaching a class right now at a local tech school where we're talking about all kinds of things and you know i'll have guys say you know man i've been working on this mix for weeks and weeks and you know and i think right there is a problem you know that therein lies the rub where of course they can't get the mix to sound right. They've been working on it for weeks. So you have to look at why has this mix taken me weeks? Well, do you keep making changes to the arrangement? That's one thing. But if it's like, I can't get this kick drum to ever sound right, you know, I'll work on it for three or four hours here and a couple hours there and maybe 30 minutes here, you know, I, I highly recommend you don't do that. Um, it's been my experience that my best mixes come when I, first of all, set out a block of time to do it. So like five to 10 hours, sometimes more, sometimes 13, 14, 15 hours. <laughs> I mean, depending on how complicated of a mix it is and just say, you know, like a full work day, which can any, be anywhere from eight to, you know, 14 hours for me. I say, today I am mixing this song from scratch. I open it up. It is totally, you know, organized uh, because I've done that like the night before and I mix it. It might take me two hours if I'm really on the ball that day or it might take me 14. And even if I'm on the ball, it might take me 14. So the point is you need to set yourself time limits. You need to give yourself, you know, time, like a legitimate time frame, you know, challenge yourself to make it quick because mixing quickly is good it it keeps you creative it keeps you on your toes it keeps you not worrying about these tiny little details that in the end don't matter and it it makes just makes for cooler sounding mixes i mean that really is the case the longer you spend with something the more you start worrying about these details and oh, i can't hear the vocal I, I oh i can't hear the guitar oh, now the kick drum's a little too loud and now the snare you know if you really just focus on, you know, what's driving the song and what how what can I do to support the vocal and make the vocalist sound like a star? I know that sounds really cheesy, but the point is you cannot spend forever mixing one song or you will lose all creativity. And I mean, it's it's kind of like, you know, when you say a word too many times and and it starts to mean nothing and it sounds funny to you, it like doesn't sound like the original word. That's how it is with a mix. If you work on a mix long enough, the song just ends up meaning nothing to you and it doesn't even sound like a good song anymore. It just sounds annoying because you've heard it 
thousands of times. You start to hate the song, and it becomes impossible to work on a song that you hate. So, give yourself time limits. Challenge yourself to save mixing till the very end. I know that a lot of guys will sort of mix as they go, and, you know, more power to you. In my opinion, it's not a good thing to do that. You can mix as you go, but when you actually start mixing, I start a new session from scratch, and I clear everything back to zero, I turn all the faders down, I do my gain staging, and then, you know, well, I turn the faders up and then do my gain staging, but you get the point. Point being, um, I start from scratch as a clean slate because I know sort of the original direction. I have the rough mix usually, or they've given me a rough mix, or they've given me some reference tracks, and I can sit there and just be creative and be quick and be efficient and... uh, and really, it improved my mixing a lot. I remember when I had a couple of jobs that, you know, they basically blocked me out for a couple of weeks and said, we need to mix every day for X number of days, you know, 10, 12, 15 days, whatever. So you had a big project. And I got so stretched out over that time, but my mixes improved just in that couple of weeks because I was able to really say, you know, I only have this much time. I have to bring it. Like, I have to get in the zone and bring it, like, hardcore for these next two weeks straight. And I did. And I was really, really happy with the way the mixes turned out. And I surprised myself because I was like, oh, man, generally I, you know, I'll mix, like, four or five hours one day and then four or five hours the next day and then it's done. And then we'll do revisions. But this was like, no, we mix a song from 8 in the morning to 9 p.m., we do revisions on it, and it's done at 10 p.m., and that's it. That's all you get. They had a very strict timeline, so challenge yourself to do that. Remember, set yourself time limits. Try to be quick. Try to be creative. Don't spend too long with a song, or you will get burned out. All right, number seven. This actually clocks in as the first actual like technical tip or whatever you want to call it. The number seven thing you can do to improve your mixing is utilize filters, high pass, low pass, and notch. So this might seem super obvious to you. Like, oh yeah, I take out the high, you know, I high pass stuff that I don't need and I'll notch out weird frequencies and, you know, but my point is you can get a lot done with just those things. As in, don't just start EQing tons of things all at once. Like, don't put a high-pass filter on and then start adding top and bottom and cutting out stuff like this. I mean, you know, try putting a high-pass filter on all of your tracks except maybe the kick. You could probably even do the kick um, pretty low even, you know. And and then maybe try putting a, a low-pass filter um, on some of the tracks too, like maybe electric guitars, you know, you put a low pass at like 10 K or 8 K or something like that. Guitars don't need to be super, super bright up there. They just get fizzy up there. Uh, you could put a, a low pass on a bass at like 5 K or 6 K, depending on how bright you like your bass. You know, you could put a, a low pass on maybe, heck, you could put a low pass on, on certain toms, depending on the tom sound that you like, you know, at, at 15 K just, Try using those filters initially and exclusively to try to get a good sound out of your mix. Like, don't try to just start EQing right away. 
And then if you hear any funky resonances or weird notes that you need to kind of pull out, like on a, if there's weird room ringing or, you know, odd snare ring, then try to pull those out. Just what you need to. Then constantly go back and revisit your balance. Okay, don't try to like do massive surgery on one individual thing yet. Just, you know, understand the power of filtering and how it can really clean up a mix. I mean, just how, you know, doing filters on the bottom end and top end of things and doing some notching on certain instruments, all of a sudden the mix sounds like 10 times better and it's really not that much work. Like you don't have to be a golden ear to really know, you know, where to put a high pass filter. You just kind of move it up until it sounds good and you still have some bottom end, but you don't have flub and you don't have, you know, like on a guitar, for example, you could put a high pass anywhere from like 50 to 200, depending on how high you like the guitar's high pass. So, I mean, my point being, don't underestimate the power of simple filters. And you can experiment also with the slope of the filter, 6 dB per octave, 18 dB per octave, you know, stuff like that. You might try a really sharp cutoff filter, um, or you might try one that's really gradual, one that like starts at like 500 hertz, but is 6 dB per octave, and it, you know, just mellowly rolls, mellowly? Is that a word? It subtly rolls off, rolls off the bottom end. I mean, that might be something that can really work that you don't need five bands of EQ to do. You might just need one simple filter. So, number seven, utilize the filters. They are your friends. And if anything, think of them as, you know, little tiny editors that clean up your sound little bits and um, don't think of them as necessarily shaping things. Think of them as cleaning up the mix. And uh, you'll probably get a lot of use. Okay, so number six is get into the groove. What do I mean by get into the groove? Well, a lot of people will, you know, record stuff to a metronome. Most stuff these days is done to a metronome. But a lot of guys will forget that everything in a song... Every single part of a song, every track that is in a mix has a groove and it has an attack, it has a release, it has sustain, you know, it has it has emotion to it. Okay, if that makes any sense. It has emotion. It you know, certain things like a kick drum might be going, you know, on the quarter notes and the acoustic guitar might be doing eighth notes. So be very aware of the relationship between the rhythms of different things and how they are interacting and are, if they're fighting and if they're playing something that doesn't match, you know, particularly with like the bass and the kick drum. Is the bass hitting with the kick drum and, you know, is it playing too much or too little? Very, very seldom will something play too little, but... You know, is something matching up? Is the acoustic guitar strumming matching up with the kick drum? Is the, you know, are the vocals, a lot of people just ignore vocal timing when it comes to comping. You know, they'll composite takes together and they'll listen for pitch and delivery and all this, but they forget about timing. That having a vocal that really sits in the pocket and sits in the groove really well is so, so important. So, like, be. I just, I've noticed the mistake a lot to not really check out timing. So I wanted to throw that in here as number six because it's so important. Another thing as far as timing goes, getting into the groove, getting into the timing of things, is be aware that timing your effects is exceptionally important. 
Like, if a reverb is timed to a snare hit, it will sound, like, right. It'll blend into the track correctly, and it'll be done reverberating by the next snare hit. And same thing goes with vocals and pre-delays, or vocals and delays. You know, you can do delays on a vocal that are in quarter notes, eighth notes, sixteenth notes, thirty-second notes, anything, and they'll sound different. But having them all in time will, generally speaking, sound a lot tighter than having them just random numbers like, uh, you know, oh, I'll do a slapback delay at like 100 milliseconds or something. It's like, what if that's not even like remotely close to the tempo? What if it sounds funky? Like, when in doubt, timing things to the song is probably going to sound good. Not always. Sometimes it sounds like really weird and like formula sounding, you know, like like a guitar pedal or something. But like pre-delays even. On a vocal, so you can have a pre-delay on a reverb, which I highly recommend, by the way. On most reverbs, I have pre-delays. Um, and you can time the pre-delay to a 16th note of the song. Um, and so it will sl- it, the reverb will start a 16th after the vocal start, uh, is singing. So you'll clear that room out so the vocal is still clear and understandable and you know uh, you can hear every word that's being said, but you hear the reverb... And your brain sort of puts those two together and says, oh, this is one, like, continuous sound. They're interlocked. But if you were to hear them in solo, they might sound a little bit funky on certain lines. Um, So, you know, get into the groove. I really mean it. Think a little bit more about the tempo and the groove of the song. And think about, you know, listen to it and, and ask yourself the question, does it feel like these players are playing together? Or does it feel like they're just sort of on the same track? That's not what we want. We want the things, we want the different instruments and the different parts and whatever it is in your song, we want them to sound like people are looking at each other and like they're playing and interacting together, that their hits interlock. Not just hit at the same time, but that they interlock. There's a difference there. So, number six, get into the groove. All right, number five, disable yourself from mixing with your eyes. I don't care what it takes for you to do that. I don't care if you have to, you know, use keyboard shortcuts to mix. My point is, I see too many people mixing with their eyes, you know, students of mine at the at the tech school, you know, will will sit there and EQ something and just look at it and look at it as they're EQing it. And they don't even really I, I can tell they're not listening to it. And uh, for example, one of my favorite plugins for EQ is the DMG Equality EQ. But uh, I'll, I'll go with one a little more common. So uh, let's say the Waves API series. What's great about those plugins, you know, I've got a, an API 5500. Do I think that the API from Waves sounds as good as the 5500? No. Does it sound pretty good? Yeah, it does. Um the nice thing about the plugin, you don't see any curves or any graph. You are forced to listen to what the resulting sound is. Same with the Waves V series. Same with actually a lot of plugins from UAD and from URS and you know all these great companies making plugins. Avoid plugins that have lots of graphs and like visual depictions of what you're doing. Because I guarantee you. It doesn't matter how good they sound. They will bias your method. 
And that's really what matters. We all know that a great engineer can take, you know, the cheapest stock plugins and make an amazing mix out of it. Why? Because they know what they're listening for. But I guarantee you that if you're struggling with EQ or struggling with things like that, struggling with getting things to mix well and sound good in a mix together, you know, I can guarantee you that disabling yourself from looking somehow either get use plugins that don't have specific attack times like for compressors you know like even the waves la2 or the waves uh, 1176 you know they're not necessarily the best sounding plugins out there but they sound really good and there's no specific attack times or decay times you know or release times or you know uh recovery rates or anything you know like that there's none of that it's just like input output attack release it sounds good to me listen for when it sounds good stop looking at numbers if you know it's starting to really bother me when i see you know plugins that have ridiculous ridiculous like graphs and charts of what it's doing to the you know as much as i love fab filter it's hard for me sometimes to use those plugins because I feel like I'm biased by the graph. Now, I believe you can actually disable the graph, so that's a that's a nice thing. Um, but it's amazing to me that you know mixing is all about using your ears and all about your ears experience and your you know your experience with music and it's about passion and it's about all these things and you know people get caught up in reading meters and like oh, I can't use 6 dB of compression, that's too much, or I can't use 20 dB of compression, that's too much. Like, that doesn't matter at all. How does it sound? Like, no one gives a crap about how many decibels of gain reduction you used on something. They don't even know what that means, first of all. And so, so the point is, if you disable yourself from using those as a crutch, you will, you'll be training your ears little by little to be listening closer and closer and closer to actually what you're doing. So get in the habit. Stop looking at meters. Stop looking at, you know... Now, this does not include clip lights, by the way. Clipping is clipping. And the lights are there for a reason to help you because digital clipping is awful and it can slowly add up over the course of your mix and make your whole mix sound terrible. So... But I mean, stop looking at gain reduction meters, you know, stop looking, stop using graphic EQs or, or like uh, paragraphic EQs, you know, like the Waves Q10 sounds fine, but it, it is completely visual. I mean, it really is. And nobody sits there and like dials in the numbers by ear. You know, when I, I use DMG equality a lot and you can disable the graph, and all you're doing is using the knobs. So you just have to move the knobs to where they sound good. You can't look at a graph or anything. And I love doing that because it helps me just listen. I'm not sitting there worried about, well, what frequency is this? I don't care. I just move it till it sounds good. And that sounds almost like a dumb approach, but you guys should know, at least if you've been a regular listener, that I'm a pretty technical person when it comes to a lot of things. And in other things, I'm very not technical but this is one of those things that you know you really need to take to heart because it will improve you so much it'll improve every mix you do if you start now and stop looking at meters like you know and and getting worried about you know oh well i need to take some out some you know some eq out here what is here you know don't look at it don't look where you're taking it out that doesn't make any sense 
listen and take out as much as you need or as little as you need. Don't worry about how much you're EQing, whether it's a lot or just a little, but just listen carefully. Be, be very cautious and, and learn from it every step of the way. Okay, number four, the most important things, the top 10 things that can improve your mixes. Automation and a lot of it. So automation is something that is so vital to my mixing process that if I ever had to switch to a system that had no automation or didn't have automation the way that I'm used to it, um, I would go insane because I use automation all the time on plugins, on sends, on faders, on pans. Well, not really pans that much. Every now and then. But on, you know, on anything, I will automate an EQ, I'll automate uh, a reverb return, I'll automate a delay, I'll automate effects on and off, I'll automate, you know, wacky compression things on and off. And I definitely automate changes between sections and, you know, changes in tiny little things in each, you know, part on a lead guitar, you know, I'll automate certain lines up and I'll automate vocals all, I mean, every single line of the vocal will be automated manually with a fader. I mean, uh, automation is amazing what it can do for your mix and how it can improve your mixes because they help your mixes have dynamics and life and excitement and you can, you know, you can do little bursts of things like on the first hit of a chorus, you can turn up the overheads and you get this crash, big crash of a cymbal, but then you can turn the overheads back to a comfortable level and uh, through the rest of the chorus, you know, you can really make your mixes like exciting and like pop out of the speakers with automation. And instead, you know, a lot of mixes that I hear coming from students or from, uh, you know, I've, I've done some mix reviews for some podcast listeners um, and, uh, you know, said, hey, listen to my mix, tell me what you think. And one of the things I notice is that some of the mixes can be great, but they just don't pop out. They seem kind of flat. And initially, a lot of guys will be like, oh, that's because it's in the box and digital is, you know, it's not 3D sound, you know, whatever. Okay, that's not the point. The point is... Make it what you have to on whatever system you are on. So figure out a way to make it happen. If you want something to sound like it's popping out at you more often, then you probably have to do the pop in yourself, unless it was recorded exceptionally dynamically and perfectly, for that matter. So after things are EQ'd and compressed and processed, a lot of times we've kind of squeezed out some of the dynamics that need to be in there to make it sound exciting and realistic. And a lot of times, like, especially if you're EQing and compressing drums, which we almost always do, um, things can just kind of sound like the same volume the whole time, the same dynamic, the same brightness the whole time, you know, versus you could slowly brighten up the drums over the course of the whole song and the song would get brighter and, and you know, and, and more exciting and, you know, brightness kind of have, has an energy to it and like a, you know, it sounds louder to us, obviously, in a lot of ways. So you can slowly just add, you know, a dB or two over the course of the whole song to make the the song seem, you know, like it has a lift towards the end. You can automate different things. You know, go check out the Make Exciting Mixes uh, episode that we had where I talk about automate, automating certain things. And um, it, it's amazing what you can do. If you really just dive deep into automation and do not be shy of it. Don't just do like little bricks of automation. Like, okay, it's a little louder in the verse. It's a little quieter in the chorus. It's a little whatever. I mean, 
really look at automation as a way to make your mix move. I mean, because once you get sort of your basic balance of your mix, that doesn't mean it's done. That means you just have a basic frame. Then you have to feature moments. You have to feature, you know, make sure the vocal is heard throughout the whole song. You know, you can turn things up and down very subtly and really get into the transitions of the song. I talk a lot about automation in my book, Three Dimensional Mixing. Uh, ThreeDimensionalMixing.com, by the way, if you want to order it. Um and I really think that uh, if, if you find all the ways that you can utilize automation, you'll, your mixes will just soar above what you ever thought they would be. All right. Clocking in at number three on the top ten things that can make your mixing better is mixing in mono. So what does this mean? It means uh, setting your speakers to mono via a plugin on your master bus, which you can use all kinds of plugins out there. There's a plugin called Lineup that does this. It will collapse the image to mono, basically summing the left and the right channels. Uh, if you have a monitor controller, which I highly suggest, you can. They usually have a mono button, which is a simple thing to press and just listen. Um, another option is you can, you know, pan your mix to one side using a pan pot point is mixing in mono will reveal a lot of things about the mix i mean a lot of things and particularly about things fighting or masking each other frequency wise you're not being fooled by the spectrum of the stereo you know image that you're that you're that you're hearing which can fool you i'm just going to tell you now it will fool you because stereo is awesome and we all know it so if you know let's say you're you've got a vocal and a guitar and they're kind of fighting each other. And your first response is to pan one. Okay, that's a great response, right? That definitely will help them you know, be on separate parts of the mix. But when you go to mono, they're still fighting each other. Now, in, again, you might say, well, like, who cares about mono? No one is listening in mono anymore. That's not the point. The point is that when you listen in mono... It will reveal the things that are fighting and how they are fighting dynamically and tonally. So if you get those right in mono and then you go back to stereo, it sounds like really good. And you're able to turn things up like you could turn that guitar a little higher and it will sound good and it won't be fighting the vocal. So you can hear things better. You can make your mixes have a little more of a, you know, a quality where a lot of, I guess a lot of people have described a lot of professional, you know, top dog mixes as, wow, I can hear everything and like everything has a moment to shine and, you know, nothing's fighting and I feel like I can pick out every single instrument and there's like, you know, been described by some as there's, seems like there's space between the instruments where you can like pick out each one and, that's because, and I guarantee you, listen to their mixes in mono, and I bet they sound great. Um, nothing's fighting. You can still hear the vocal clearly. It's amazing. So mix in mono, you know, give it a shot. Try mixing in mono for, you know, 30 minutes every once in a while, you know? Like, if you're not used to it, just say, okay, it's, you know, 6 o'clock. Uh, let's, I'm going to mix for the next 30 minutes in mono. And obviously you can't, you know, mess with panning, but mess with balances and EQ. And I'm serious, it, it will amaze you 
if you've never done it before, it will amaze you what what will happen in that 30 minutes. If you're freaked out about it, save a copy of your session and call it Mixing in Mono Test. And then mix in mono for like 30 minutes and just, you know, EQ some stuff, compress stuff, you know, and try not to solo up too many tracks. So, number three, mixing in mono. That's important. All right, number two, mix quietly. I cannot stress enough the importance of a good monitoring system. I was just talking to someone today who, you know, was talking about their computer being this like wonderful centerpiece of their studio. And, you know, I, I had to disagree. I said, you know, really, you guys have an amazing monitor rig. Um, I think that's really the centerpiece of your studio. And we kind of got to talking about it like, you know, monitor monitors don't get a lot of love. I mean, they're expensive and, you know, people hate spending all this money on them and you can get them up to ridiculous prices. I mean, thirty forty fifty thousand dollars for like the highest end you know pair like for mastering and you know good like mixing monitors are like two three four five thousand dollars a pair and like prosumer stuff is in the you know five hundred to two thousand dollars a pair range and i mean you can spend a ton of money but i mean that is what the entire sound hinges on is what you're hearing and the sounds that you get on the way in the sounds that you're hearing when you're doing overdubs when you're editing when you're, you know, gating, when you're compressing, when you're EQing, when you're mixing, when you're mastering, every single thing that you're hearing is coming out of those speakers at every moment of the process. Like, that's a really important thing. That would, I, I would say that is the centerpiece. And so I'm going to say that, you know, number two is mix quietly, but I should really just revise that to almost just be very aware of your monitoring environment. And realize that, you know, if you mix loudly, you're going to bias yourself. And you're going to think that the mix sounds awesome. And, oh man, it sounds so heavy and hard-hitting and in my face. Well, of course it is. It's loud. And you turn the mix down and it sounds really wimpy. Well, how do you... I mean, that that consider that normal listening volume for, you know, music on in the background. That's what it's going to sound like. And if you have the radio on in the car... That's probably, you know, a decent picture of what it might sound like. And you're training yourself wrong from the start if you're doing that. If you're mixing loud, you're hurting your ears, you're wearing yourself out quick, you can't mix for a long time when the speakers are that loud. And if you really want to do this, you know, like for a while, you need to protect your ears and, you know, protect your sanity a little bit. I mean, you'll drive yourself nuts mixing super loud. So mix as quietly as you can. You know, try to make your room as quiet as you can, you know, turn off the air conditioner if you have to, or turn off any loud appliances or turn, of course, like turn off anything that's, you know, making noise like a, uh, like a fan or, you know, uh, a loud computer or move a computer over to the side, you know, try to make your room very quiet and obviously treat your room. That's a given and try to make the best monitoring environment you can so you can really focus in on the details of what you're doing. Mixing quietly makes such a big difference. Um, there are some people that say, you know, oh, when I mix quietly, I don't have the room in the equation. Well, you know, the room isn't being affected. Well, it is, just not as much. I mean, the room is still a part of what you're hearing at all times, constantly, no matter what volume. Um, now, yes, when the when the sound that's being projected into the room is louder, 
the problems are more apparent. And you don't want to make so quiet that like you can't hear what you're doing. I mean, don't make it ridiculous. Just mix below, you know, below talking level where you could talk over your mix easily, just casually. Um, and if you can make it sound like really hard hitting and loud and, and strong when your mix level is quiet. And I'm talking about your listening level, not like the actual like faders, but like the listening level. Um, if you can make it sound good with your listening level low, I mean, it'll probably sound awesome when you turn it up. So keep that in mind. That's number two. All right. You guys are not going to like this one. I'm sorry because it's not fun. It's not a mix tip. I guess not many of these have really been specific mix tips. They've been more theory. But number one thing that can improve your mixes is understand the tools. And uh, again, this is my opinion on this matter, but I feel like if you understand the tools that you're working with, you know, what the plugins, the, the processors like compressors and EQs and gates and DSers and and automation and multiband compression and parallel compression and tape emulation and limiters and all of these different processors and all of these different things and understanding like balance and panning and understanding you know, things like mixing in mono. If you understand all the tools at your disposal, you can mix. Like, it doesn't matter what the gear is. But if you understand how whatever you have, how that works, and you understand your monitors, you understand, you know, your system, your setup, you understand your session organization, you understand that, you know, your tracks have enough headroom, you know, you understand why headroom is important, you realize that clipping is bad, you know, all of those things. If you understand all of the things that you're working with, then you can make great mixes. And yes, of course, it takes time. You're not going to become a great mixer overnight. It, I mean, and there's that quote that I love so much that says, mixes never get finished, they get released. Because I don't feel like any mixer is really ever that, you know, super super satisfied with their mixes for all eternity you know they'll hear a mix and they'll think it sounds amazing and then six months later they're like man i could have done that better and what's funny is in some way i think that you know they could have done it better i think that everyone is growing and in a constant state of getting better but at the same time people's ears are changing and their their tastes are changing and you're like you know what i think i just mixed that snare too too loud or I mix that guitar solo too loud or and that vocal is, you know, sounds a little bright, man. Why did I mix the vocal so bright? And it is always changing. So don't feel the need to compare yourself in that way to, you know, every single mix that you do, but you know, realize that if you understand your tools, you understand your system, your whole system as one sort of, you know, every each little part is like a cog in a big machine then you can really make good mixes. And I know that's kind of a crap out, you know, number one, but it's so important. Like that's that's the moral of the story is understand the whole system and make it yours and, you know, understand the tools at your disposal. And you can do amazing things with any system at any level. All right, guys, I'm signing off here. And uh, if you guys have questions, comments, tips, thoughts, whatever, you know, Give me a holler at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. 
holler, holler, yes, give me a holler. Um, and I would love to talk to you about anything or suggestions for new shows too. I'm also open to that always. Um, check out the blog, recordinglounge.blogspot.com. Check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash recordinglounge. Be a part of the community, and I usually post there when I have new show updates. And um, I look forward to talking to you guys soon. I've got some cool shows uh, around the bend, so stay tuned. <laughs>